Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the History Hit World Wars podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers. And in this special episode for International Women's Day, I'm joined by the amazing Dr. Tessa Dunlop. She's a BBC broadcaster and the author of The Bletchley Girls. Tessa takes us through what it was like to work at Bletchley Park and to be involved in that amazing code-breaking effort. She tells us how you became a Bletchley girl. Well, it turns out you usually had to be pretty elite and at least know a language... And sometimes it could be pretty boring, but often it was amazing. Tessa has interviewed so many of those who worked at Bletchley Park, and so the insight that she provides is truly fascinating. So here is Tessa Dunlop on the Bletchley Girls. Hi Tessa. Hello. Thanks for coming on the World Wars. How are you doing today? I'm very well. I was just trying to tease out at the moment I'm working on a project which does involve one of my Bletchley girls. I'm quite possessive, not how I put the word my there. Actually, she's a Bletchley girl in her own right. But she was also an army girl. She was in the ATS. Betty Webb, MBE. MBE not, incidentally, James, for fighting in the war but for talking so eloquently about being in the war, because that's where we're at now, isn't it? Some 75, 80, 85 years on. And I was thinking, gosh, I mustn't conflate the two when I talk to you. It's really easy. The more you learn and the more you research, the more everything's joined up. And when I first started, The Bletchley Girls was the very first book I wrote, actually, history book, and but it was before I'd finished my PhD. And so I saw it very much as this island and... Actually, as I've become a bit more experienced, I realise it's all interconnected. So now when people ask me a question, they sit there for like 10 hours waiting for me to get to the end of my answer. (laughs) Well, let's jump straight into it then, because you've obviously got the mindset of the Bletchley Girls. You've got that hat on right now. So tell us, who were the Bletchley Girls? Well, you see, even that takes us down 10 different rabbit holes. Who were they? They were, interestingly, there were sort of two generations of Bletchley Girls. The project starts as this eccentric experiment, which we've all come to love the idea of this location outside of London in Buckinghamshire, Bletchley, where a few sort of 
boffins decide they're going to try their hand at cracking codes and it's a sort of offshoot of the foreign office to an extent and those boffins over 90% male need backup need admin support the foreign office has always relied certainly between the wars on women for that so some of those women were therefore seconded to the Bletchley project and as more women were needed and from the outset they were aware that this was absolutely top secret so what you tend to find happening is in those very early years is a certain type of woman is recruited, i.e. those with connections to the ruling class, the few who know about the Bletchley project. So the military elite godmothers would say, oh, I know one of my daughters, you know, speaks a bit of German. What? So that's why there is often, I think, among the many Bletchley myths, there is one about it being manned by, forgive that oxymoronic phrase, manned by posh women and to an extent initially I would say there was a disproportionate number of upper middle class girls and I think one of the books refers to Debs debutantes and there were a few debutantes in fact one of the women in my book was utterly terrifying something about a certain type of aristocrat forgive me for knowing too much about this James but they make life difficult for you when you interview them and Lady Jean Ford was one of those women she was actually a good friend fellow blue blood of Baroness Trumpington another Jean, and they were both at the park together, both seriously tall women as well. She, unlike Trumpington, she really didn't enjoy her time there, Lady Jean Ford. And I find that really interesting about doing oral history is most people who come forward with their stories, and I mentioned Betty Webb there at the beginning, who you know has been given awards for talking so much about the war and supporting museums, etc. It's because they enjoyed their war. They got a lot from it. Enjoy is a loaded term when we're talking about war, but it changed their life irrevocably and generally for the better. Lady Jean Ford, that wasn't the case. And I had to write, I think, three letters to get an audience with. She lived on the Isle of Arran. And she was very important for balance, I felt, because there is this, Bletchley was seen as this relatively cushy birth, certainly an exciting intellectual place to be in a war where otherwise women were cooks, orderlies, drivers, etc. And for me, Lady Jean Ford, because she didn't want to be there, she didn't like the job she had when she got there. She found it belittling. She thought the whole thing was dead dull. That was really important balance. I'm sure there were lots of other women who felt like that and who just haven't bothered going down memory lane and acknowledging their role as a Bletchley veteran, etc. And so she was interesting. She's also a case in point where her father, the Duke of Montrose, was tipped off you know, oh, we could do with your girl in Bletchley. So she then thinks, she gets this idea, she's going on this really exciting secret mission, probably thinks she's going to be dropped in behind enemy lines. In fact, one of her great regrets was that she didn't speak a foreign language. I think she saw herself attached to a parachute. And so when she ends up in a park, literally in Hut 8, actually, and she had a bird's eye view of new, in fact, Alan Turing and to so-called foil fiancé, etc. But at the time, these aren't big names. It's not like, wow, being starstruck like we are now retrospectively. And she's just bent over very tall, tick-ticking on this page where she's trying to find three ticks in a row. And if she does, she shuffs the piece of paper through to the next hatch. Well, Lady Jean didn't anticipate this would be her war. So she was, I started the story on this example of actually how the Bletchley Park narrative, it depends who tells it. And I think we also have to remember now 80 years on, the park itself is a big institution which is an independent one, it doesn't belong to English heritage or whatever, they have to make money to survive. So they have to build on that narrative, build on the glamour. Hollywood has to build on the glamorous narrative to make us buy into the films. And there's been a couple, haven't there, recently. So I think the first generation of Bletchley women were these posh girls 
drafted in. They were civilian uniformed and they worked for the Foreign Office. That's who paid them. Their labour was temporary, of course. Women were only ever temporary. Lest we forget, the gender divisions were temporarily suspended. Not entirely, but there was a spy given to women not really working for the duration of the war. But that temporary status came to an end in 45. (laughs) Okay, so generation one of Bletchley girls are safe to say elites, but that's probably because they knew a language and to know a language you might have a slightly higher level of education and maybe also a little bit of bias there. You got a link up with the higher ups and maybe you're a little bit more trusted. But what about the second generation? Does it change? That's it, James. The last point is, I think, the key point that they were trusted. And I think Interestingly, that's been interpreted as, oh, posh girls were more trustworthy. I don't think it was anything as sinister and elitist as that. I think it was that we trust people we know, whether rightly or wrongly. So if I know you, I'll bank on you holding your word, then I will some random James that I don't know. I'll take a punt on you because, you know, your mum says you're a good fellow and your mum's friends with my mum. And it was literally like that. And also... Such a tiny clique, really, the ruling elite in Britain. It really was. They all knew each other. It was quite weird and incestuous. You'd see the same people popping up. Going back generations. Indeed. So what you have is this, what is the experimental stage? Coming to an end, really, once you get Turing with the invention of the bomb, this giant metal bookcase that's going to be cracking the Enigma codes, you know, at a rate of 18,000 messages a day is eventually what the bomb is going to be doing. It's churning through what's known as traffic. I think they were staggered by just the amount of communication that was available, radio communication that was used by the Germans, and that also they were able to intercept. So what starts as this oh, curious experiment out of London quite quickly gathers momentum when there's these mechanical technological advances and when they see the scope of what's available. By 41, you get the famous missive to Churchill about scaling up, you know, the five angry men. I think it's led by Turing's one of them. Dilwyn Knox is another, Welchman another, where they're like, this is a joke unless you give us, again, the manpower. But that was the phrase and the resources. 41 is also a very interesting year from the point of view of women's role in the war. Up until 41, we're pretending we don't really need women. There's a few eccentric women led by Helen Gwynne Vaughan, who is that sort of military type. Always going to get the military type of woman left over from the First World War, probably got a hairy upper lip, that sort. And uh, literally, I think, I'm not joking, they're quite caricature-like and viewed as such and a bit dated. They're the sort that, you know, there's a rush to signing up and becoming part of this female military. Begins as the ATS, you then have the Rens, the Naval Service and the WAFs, the Air Force. By 41, for the first time, you get a government awareness and in the Labour ministry that actually they're going to have to get behind women being part of the war effort. There's no good pretending. If you think at the beginning of the war, we're pretending the men are fighting to save their women at home. It's still that massive gender division that it's really hard to get your head around today. What were men fighting for? They were fighting for the comely wife back at the table in the sink. So is it going to undermine morale if women are fighting in a uniform? We've jettisoned that idea by 41. Massive U-turn, really. Certainly for Churchill, changes his mind hugely. In late 41, we're going to have to conscript women. So while Bletchley Park's sending him a message saying, hey, dude, we need more kit, more people, there is also a new legislative act, the National Service Act 2, in December 41, which allows women not only to be 
conscripted into munition factories, etc. That had already been decided, but also into the services, i.e. the ATS, in fact, because that was the one that could never get enough recruits. ATS is the Auxiliary Territorial Service. That's the army for women. So you have a solution to a problem, Bletchley's problem. Where are we going to get the extra staff? It's certainly not among the men because they're all on the front line. It's got to be from women. These women have to be mobile because they've got to either go to Bletchley Park or one of the outstations. And they're going to supplement. They won't replace. They'll supplement the debutants and the civilians. Not all posh, but as we know, generally pulled in because of some sort of connection or ability or both. Pamela was both a debutant and spoke German. So they are, and she's still alive today at 103, I'll have you know. That's Deb, Pamela, very reluctant debutant. What's also happened by 41 is, because remember these women's services were born feet first. Crash, bang, wallop, we weren't ready for it, we weren't prepared. 30s are wandering blindly along, pretending we don't need to arm up, certainly not thinking about women's services, for God's sake. I mean, we're so reluctant about putting women in uniform that... For example, it's still massively controversial and they're never going to be allowed to pull a trigger. When we think they might invade and the gun sites are seen as the place where the most vulnerable, the women are on patrol in the guard's hut, but they're not allowed to hold a gun. They've got a stick. So if a German does arrive, they're going to have to, what, prod him with a stick? This is where we're at gender-wise. So actually, Bletchley in a way is ideal because it's safe. I don't think any bomb ever went anywhere near Bletchley. The other great concern about girls was they'd be bothered by men. That word promiscuity was everywhere in the press. One of the women I'm interviewing at the moment for my current book, Army Girls, is like, why do you always ask me about sex? And I'm like, because your generation were obsessed with the fact you girls are going to be deflowered. And there was quite a lot of men at the park who we know were older, boffany. And I'm sure a fair few of them were a bit randy, for God's sake. In fact, from what Martha, one of my bombardiers, says, it was the dirty old men we had a problem with. But there were far fewer men. These girls massively outnumbered the men, which was reassuring. The big fear was when there was just very few girls up close and personal stationed with men on, say, for instance, searchlight sites or something. But in Bletchley Park, you're going to get loads of young girls and they're all going to be there together. There's safety in numbers and there's no ammunition. There's no triggers. They are going to retain that sacred non-combat status. So it's the perfect place for girls, really. Because the other great concern was parents. What would parents say? Well, don't forget, parents weren't allowed to know what their girls were doing. But at least the government could think, well, they're going to be safe at Bletchley Park. So one of the big things, just touching on that, whether you're a Deb or a Wren or a WAF, is secrecy. That is a huge deal. And it ties into that idea of trust. So if you're going to branch out and start recruiting far more girls, and three quarters of the park by the end of the war were staffed by girls, and there were over 8,000 staff. So that's 6,000 odd women few of whom remain today. So if you can't check, you know, whether Charlotte's got Beau Define, a godmother who's going to make sure she keeps a secret, you're going to terrify her into keeping a secret. And in fact, what's interesting, again, it's a little bit goes down to generational stuff and also hierarchical things. And the mindset of that generation was that none of those girls were ever going to talk, interestingly. First of all, after the war, they weren't asked about their war because it was very much framed as a man's war. Your gender's fault there, James. Let's just Get that off my chest. You're not wrong. Yeah. So all those masculine war films in the 50s. Do you know what I mean? There weren't a girl in there, was there, unless she was being snogged with the mood music when the title runs go. So they're not going to be asked. And also they're just out of school, most of these girls. And they're used to doing what they're told. They're deferential. We live in a class-based world at this time. We live in a world where women shut up and put up mainly. And we also live in a world which is more patriotic, is unified by a common enemy and does what it's told. 
And unlike the posturing men, Churchill included after the war, these girls are not trying to write memoirs to boost their ego. You know, that happens much later. I think Betty's written a memoir in the last few years and Baroness Trumpington, etc. That's taken 80 years to start writing the memoirs. So they're a safe bet in terms of blabbing. They're not going to blab. The other reason why they're a safe bet is they don't know what they're doing. Most of them have no clue what they're doing. Yeah, I was going to ask. It sounds patronising coming from me, but did they know what they were doing? Because we think of Bletchley as this hive mind of people going around and swapping information. But it wasn't like that, was it? It was very segregated no, in terms of sections. Totally segregated. And you couldn't talk shop. Ah, okay. You couldn't talk shop, which is why they all had these weird hobbies. Like there was the drama society. And Pamela, who I mentioned living in Kensington, was an actress and in fact had to forego her first West End role because she spoke German and her godmother sent her off to Frank Birch, one of the hygians at the park. And he said, well, the stage can wait, the war can't. And off she goes. But she takes these acting skills and she orchestrates the amdrams, although she finds the standards a bit low. And then there's the Mar de Garel Society, something where they sing in fields. That's what Betty did. And there was all sorts of different hobbies and so forth. Because if you can't talk shop, you've got to talk about other things. You've got to invent your pleasures and your recreation. And recreation and leave was a very big deal. But yeah, they're all bound to secrecy and there's concentric circles of knowledge. So if Turing and Gordon Welchman have an idea of what's going on, Pamela incidentally, to keep going back to her, she was interesting and she was one of the very few women who was promoted. Very few women were promoted. They were drafted in to be a cog in a wheel of this big, what had become a sort of code-breaking factory. Pamela goes in and she speaks a bit of schoolgirl German. Better than that, actually. She had done her finishing years in Munich, you know. I don't know. I must have been very ignorant. I didn't really notice the rise of Hitler. But she did date a gorgeous actor, though, so that was much more important, I suppose, when you're 16. So there we go. She comes back. She has a bit of schoolgirl German and she works in Huff. And it's really the precursor to the information age where you don't have the microchips, all your data, because Bletchley's basically collating and collecting all this extraordinary levels of data. She's filing it. They're the decrypts. And her Germans use, because it's a bit like getting a text message in German. Once it's been decoded, it's been intercepted, received, decoded, come out the other end of a bomb machine or Colossus machine. Then it goes to Pamela in Hut 4. She's naval section. So it might be about the Sharn horse or something. And she thinks, oh, I need to put that somewhere. So when they come and say to me, when did we last see the channels? She knows which cardboard box to go to. So what you have is just before the information age, this vast rows of shoeboxes. So that's one end. What Pamela's dealing with is ultra, which is the decoded material, the resin detriment for Bletchley Park. But let's go to the other end of the equation because you don't have Bletchley Park unless you have communications being intercepted. And again, that was a whole branch of code breaking, not located at the park, but in different interception stations, mainly in Britain, but certainly not exclusively in Britain, also in Egypt and across the continent and in the Far East. And those girls are Y station listeners. Again, predominantly women, most of them Wrens. I should say when there was a decision made that women from the military would be recruited, partly because by 1941, we've got a much better selection process for recruiting women. So all the girls who are entering into any military service are tested quite rigorously in the first three or four weeks of training to decide what job they'll be given in whichever service. The Wrens always had a slightly elite, snooty really, reputation. They never had to rely on conscription. They always had enough volunteers, this elite brigade. And it's a much smaller service, the Wrens. And it's no coincidence the Wrens were the force that was predominantly used to recruit for both the park 
and the Y station services, although not exclusively. Some signals were also drafted in by the ATS up in the Yorkshire Moors. There were rafts of girls literally in barracks and they stayed in Harrogate and then they were driven onto the Yorkshire Moors and they sat there intercepting Morse messages. Pat was on several coastal stations intercepting German messages. But again, it would be the German alphabet, Alpha Bertha Caesar. I can't speak German like most people in Britain at that time, which is why Pat was so valuable. She could speak German. But it was Enigma encrypted. So it didn't make any sense to her. And the Morse that the ATS girls on the Yorkshire Moors were getting in was not only in Morse, but it was also Enigma encrypted. So they're taking down these five letters very bit in a row and they're writing them all down, sitting there listening with their headphones. Those messages, nonsensical stuff, they then send off via teleprinter or via a motorbike to Station X. They don't know where Station X is. They don't know what Station X is. They don't have the mental landscape or the knowledge of what they're doing. So if they were caught by a Nazi and strung up by the earlobes, they wouldn't be able to say very much. And that's the thing about not only are they bound and terrified by the official secrets act, but they also don't know enough to blab. What's difficult about working with oral history, especially in an area like Bletchley Park, which is so famous, is working out what the women have subsequently learned. So when they're talking to you, you think, yeah, but did you know that when you were 18? Because I don't think you would have known that. And that can be a challenge. So Pat and Nanza and whoever else is in Y Station sending their stuff that arrives at Bletchley, Betty, who I mentioned earlier, is there. She's an army girl. She was in the ATS, probably recruited because she spoke German, although her German wasn't actually used. I don't think it was good enough. She admits that. She was there as a data inputter. So she's getting all this data and she's having to log it before it's sent off to be decrypted. Now, we know everyone knows about this great famous mechanisation. War always leads to progress in that respect, ironically enough, with the first electronic testing machine, the bomb, not a computer, we must keep saying that, but nonetheless, extraordinary in the capacity it gave us to read Enigma encrypted messages at a speed and volume that was unprecedented. There were so many bombs, they had to be stationed, and also because of the secrecy, they had to be stationed outside the park. So there were outstations like Stanmore in the north of London. And I think something like nearly 2,000 wrens were employed in total to man the bombs and to plug them in, get all their drums whirring and rotating, and to get once they've been fed in with menus which come from the park, which is basically the menus that arrived from the Enigma wheels that day by the code breakers in the Bethlehem of Bletchley Park Hut 6. And you will get brighter girls working there with cryptanalysts. Of course, there were some female cryptanalysts. They were dead by the time I wrote my book. The sort of, I suppose, most intellectual, in inverted commas, or certainly most educated girl and recruited for her education was Anne Mitchell. She went to Oxford and was allowed to finish her education. She studied maths. And Oxbridge, again, you got the military, you got your posh connected girls, and you have this other tranche via which recruitment goes on. Great train lines from Bletchley to Cambridge and Oxford. It's all very proximate. And she's recruited directly from Oxford. And there's a sort of knowledge there, a little bit of knowing this. You can see in her diary, this idea of what Bletchley is. She doesn't know it's code breaking, but she's certainly heard of it. And it sounds like the sort of job she wants. And being a classy kind of girl, not posh, but blue stocking, she certainly doesn't want to wear a uniform. She would have seen that as a step down, actually. So she works in Hut 6. They send the menus out to the outstations where the bombs are churning away, then delivering the Enigma codes for that day so that you can get on and break down what these nonsensical looking encrypted messages say and are, which then become this rich ultra material, most of which, by the way, is meaningless, pointless and not interesting, then has to be sifted through, translated. You can see it's a massive job, which is why it's like a factory, Bletchley Park, by the end. Because the individual girl's jobs, when you broke it down, it's like anyone who works in a factory of any sort. Your little job putting the cherry on the cake. 
you're not going to learn a huge amount about the inside operations of an Enigma machine, but there was so much more that was fascinating about the gender spheres, about the recruitment, about the secrecy, about the camaraderie, about the occasional breakthroughs. Roseanne was fascinating. She spoke Italian. She knew Mussolini in between the wars. Her father was air commodore in Italy. And she actually had a moment where she broke a code. And because of what she saw in the middle of the night, they shot down a bunch of Italian carrier planes coming back from Tripoli. And then Roseanne being Roseanne, she was wonderfully sort of romantic Roseanne. And she's telling me this story of, you know, how exciting it was. She got this big clap on the back in the middle of the night. She'd seen, she was just doing fairly prosaic decoding with a manual book. And then she said, but I love the Italians. She starts crying. And I think that's one of the reasons I always feel a bit wary of the way in which I think there's a tendency because of how important our war narrative is in our British story that we lionise war. And I think I'm very wary of doing that in the books I write. I don't want to lionise war. There must be easier, better, more humane ways of giving girls a career break and inventing the next computer. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. It must have been very difficult for some of these women, because like you say, if they were debutantes, then they'd probably done some of their finishing schools in Europe. And they'd done the tour. And so they had a love, not an allegiance in no way, shape or form, but a love for Europe. So there must have been a bit of a split there. It must have been difficult. Yeah, absolutely. I think there was an allegiance, personal allegiance sometimes. In war, it needs to be black and white, doesn't it? If you're going to have to kill your enemy, it will be part of a machine. I always remember my dad saying why he didn't go in the services. He said, well, because ultimately it's about killing someone else. I didn't want to do that. And I think when we really break down to the nub of it, that's where we're at. Whether you're an orderly wiping the floor back in Britain, you're part of this greater machine that's there to defeat the enemy. And in the great mechanised era in the 20th century, that meant mass killing. And I think it was interesting. We forget just how much more European we were in some senses. 
we loved a bit of Wagner and the Weimar Republic and some of the great German poets and we were fellow Protestant Anglo-Saxon nations. I think we've forgotten about our affection for Germany and all things German because of the aberration of the Second World War. We had a very interesting altercation on Twitter the other day. I'm always a bit scared of Twitter. But the Galicia girls helped me see this. Roseanne helped me see this, where on the one hand, you have these heroes of the war, you know, and we all know Churchill's quote, never so few done for so many, etc. And these airmen in their flying jackets, very nervously having their cigarette before they take off into the skies to bomb the hell out of Germany. And we, something like 40,000 die in the Blitz. 60 in total, 60,000 men and women and children in Britain are killed because of German bombing. Nearly half a million die in Germany. Let's just check out that scale. Nearly 10 times as many. And yet we never talk about that story. The German civilians who were killed. And I said under this very romantic looking and celebrated footage of these allied airmen who were going to go and fly and I think bomb Hamburg. And I said, yeah, lethal heroes. And I was picked up and I was told it was a tweet in bad taste. And I thought, where have we got to now in our narrative that we can't acknowledge civilian Germans were also killed. And surely with all our recent Trump stuff and Brexit stuff, that we understand that being German was not the same as being part of the German war machine or believing in it. And I think I would like to see more unstitching of that, just like there was a huge amount of remembering of the First World War. And I was obsessed with the First World War because my PhD was about the First World War and the Eastern Front. And I always felt that we looked very emotionally at the Tommy, that 750,000 British Tommies died, and rightly so, in all the memorials to every village in Britain. But we didn't really use that chance and the money invested by the government, 400 million over the four-year period of the 100th anniversary of World War I, to look at the explosion and the rearrangement of Europe in that period and to better understand Europe. And I think one of the sadnesses, from my point of view, of both the way we look at the Second and the First World War is we don't use it to further understand our relations today with Europe. What do you think? Living in Denmark as you do? I do live in Denmark, not a million miles away from the German border and not a million miles away from Hamburg, actually. And the legacies of the war here are fraught social division, of course, at the time, with the Nazis occupying Denmark and then the government stepping down in 1943. And then the same government who collaborated with the Nazis being re-elected in 1945 and then trying to build a really fragmented society. And because of that, the war is kind of not spoken about here. So Denmark looks back at the Vikings as their prime time of history. But it's a bit like the Germans look back to Luther, don't they? Of course. And the Reformation. Yeah, it is interesting because like you say, when it comes down to the bombing of places like Dresden and Hamburg, or you go and look at the Pacific Front and the Americans bombing places like Tokyo, even Robert McNamara, who was involved in the bombing with General Curtis LeMay, would say that if we'd lost the war, we would have been tried as war criminals because history is written by the victor. But when it comes back to your Bletchley girls, I suppose part of their love or allegiance for Europe was also trying to reinstate and recover things like the Weimar Republic and that peaceful time that had been there in Europe and liberate those people. Yeah, and I think the other thing that undeniably all the information that came out about the concentration camps in '45 hardened sentiment towards our idea of Germany. And I think also the perfidy really of France, which we very much see them as cowards and flaking out on us, not entirely justifiably, I mean, there's a whole different conversation. But I think 
At best, we have, going forward, an ambivalent relationship about lots of bits of Europe. And at worst, we're darn right pulled by them. And I think that narrative, because we also need to tell ourselves this was the Great War and the Right War, it cost us our empire, it cost us a fortune we've only just paid off, it cost us hugely on a number of levels. So we then have to write it as a story that's been good for Britain in the end. And that means that I think we've had to carry on reminding ourselves of the darkness that we were saved from. And Bletch is very much part of that. And I think just to go back to why Bletchley has so captured the nation's imagination, I think if you look at the Agatha Christie model, anywhere in an enclosed space, so death on the Nile or on a train or in a mansion, and Bletchley is that, isn't it? Breaking it down to just the mansion and the huts. There's something romantic about that. It's an enclosed space. It's a goldfish bowl. Lady Jean Ford knows that Alan Turing's gay. She knows that Joan Clark, by the way, who doesn't look anything like Keira Knightley, so she always kept saying that to me. So it's like this wonderful thing where there's leading personalities. It's romantic. And also, because we're nowadays regard war very differently, it's not bloodthirsty, it doesn't involve death, although it does. We're reading the other player's hand of cards and then they don't know it. But it's sort of seen as clean almost. And it's like outsmarting the enemy in a cleverer way than just dropping a bomb. Say, let's go back to Hamburg. That's uncomfortable history, whether you're looking at it from a British point of view or a German point of view. It's pitiful from a German point of view. So Bletchley is a much cleaner version from the same story. And also something we did very well and we did better than the enemy. Germany, one of the reasons is they didn't have it all in one location. So their code breaking was split up over five different areas. We had it all in this one hub, Bletchley, where it was a very centralised process, which really helped. And we definitely did have it down to a fine art by the end. It's something we're very good at. The Americans recognised that. And it's why we held on to the secrets, because soon our enemy stops being Germany, doesn't it? It becomes Russia. It's why we hold on to that secret, which again builds into that mythology, because the longer something's secret, the bigger it seems to be when suddenly you get the expose in the 70s. So yeah, there's lots of reasons. For me, the most exciting thing when I did the Bletchley story was meeting the women, because I found it, I was so naive about the position of women, understanding about the emphasis placed where the emphasis was on their lives and their life expectations in the 30s, pretty damn limited, and what the war offered them. And I found that absolutely fascinating. And it's led to writing the army. It's led to an obsession, really, about the different gender spheres and why it is, ironically, that despite Lady Jean Ford's boredom, she off went off in the end for the Red Cross and sailed the seas, one of the very few women who was able to leave the park, actually, because that was very hard to do. Why, for many of the women, it was a great moment in their lives. And the 50s, remember, is a very conventional decade. But you break the mould in the 40s. And although they're still non-combatants and they're paid less than men and they're not revered in the same way, they still have this breath of fresh air. Even if their job is slightly dull and repetitive, they're away from home. They're being recognised for what they're doing. And it's just really interesting how people love being recognised for what they do. They just love it. It doesn't matter what gender you are, what generation you are. And even today, James, and that was been the other great delight and has led me to do this last book, even the body withers, the ego persists. You know, what we see is old people just sitting in a home. These are people who care. And the hardest bit is curating their stories because they really care about what I write. And you can't write too much sex, Tessa. I'm like, oh, God damn you. You know, come on, Anne. So that for me has been really fascinating, a reminder how much these women care still. And to platform them has been a great privilege. But how do they want to be? remember then because that's the important thing here this is their legacy how should we remember the Bletchley girls that's a good question I think they've been reinstated in the narrative and they feel good about that they're pleased they definitely felt overlooked but I wonder to what extent it's because they were asked because there's no assumption on their part there was so little expectation because of their gender they didn't expect to be asked 
But I think all of them would just share with you the delight they take in being asked about the war. And it surprised them. Incidentally, I am doing a conversation with the fact that they're up for that and they want to do that is a sign of just how much they've enjoyed being recognised. They don't see themselves as heroes. People see them as heroes. One of them was scoring the word hero out of all the bits I wrote about her, which made it challenging. They see it as just doing their job, which to an extent they were. Retrospectively, we know what they saved us from and they were part of this greater narrative. But at the time they felt actually it was a boon for them. They were lucky to work there. So it's interesting. But without a doubt, they're pleased. They want to be in that narrative. They think it's a very important bit of history, bit of woman's history. And I think they are pioneers in many respects and wonderfully uncomplaining this lack of entitlement about what they're worth and you as how much the feminist narratives moved on you know where we can't get it quick enough now and they're sort of almost embarrassed shuffling onto the stage receiving their accolades and charlotte's been given an mbe thank the good lord but just really quickly on the importance of people sharing their stories and being recognized for their role in our national story Betty, who had this phenomenal war, she works in the park and then she's seconded, the only ATS girl to be seconded from the park in 45 to go and work in the brand new Pentagon when it's still got cellophane paper on it virtually. So she has this extraordinary war. And I remember saying to her, what's been the best bit of your life? Thinking she'd say the Pentagon or Bletchley Park. Or... And she went, now is the best time of my life because she's got so much out of lecturing and talking and being asked about it. And that I think is the big deal. It's asking people the role they've played in their national narrative and I think we suddenly get fashions don't we let's talk about women's history let's talk about black history let's but actually it's just about I think especially with the older generations checking in with them how have we got to where we've got and you can't do that if you don't know what came beforehand and for me these Bletchley girls were found that people worked out there were more girls who spoke German than there were in the cabinet. Nobody in our male cabinet spoke German at the beginning of the war. There was loads of girls who did, but they were seen as accomplishments, foreign languages, not intellectual abilities. It's just really fascinating how things have changed. But in order to understand where we're at today, you have to understand what came yesterday, don't you? And I think for me, that's very humbling. Like Charlotte Betty, she's got two names. She's so famous, she has two names. She said to me, oh, I don't know about girls on the front line today, because, you know, what do they do if they have a period? And I said, well, Betty, there is the pill now. And also, don't forget, you've got really good pain relief. She went, oh, I'd forgotten about that because I used to faint with my period. You know, it's just, it was a different world being a woman then. And the reason why there was this obsession with promiscuity and stuff was because if a woman had sex, she probably would get pregnant. They were also young, weren't they? Fertile as hell. So again, all these things, they'd bletch you apart. You'd get pregnant in the park or in the services, you're out. And your family won't, you know, it's... So there's these cliff edges that today don't exist in the same way. It's been fascinating for me, though. No, it really is, yeah. And it's been fascinating to hear about these individual stories and about this history. Where can people read more about the Bletchley Girls? Oh, you're so kind, James. I've written a book, guess what, a while ago, the Bletchley Girls. But also I'm doing this lecture. It'll be on your social media because I'm going to bully you to put it on. It's going to be sometime in April, once Charlotte and Pat are going to be zoomed up and ready to go. We're going to do a conversation with, and I would love it if you could all join us for that. Watch this space. We will be there. Uh, make sure you check on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, where we will post the details. Thank you so much, Tessa, and we'll get you back on the podcast soon. Thank you.
A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.